0: Here with you all, I am excited to be back in the pulpit today, uh, having the opportunity to bring you God's Word. Uh, thank you for all of the prayers that have happened over the past few weeks for uh, my eye and for my eye to heal. Things are not back to you know, being perfect as they were before, but I can read, I can see you all, I can drive, I can do all the things that I need to do, and I am so grateful for that. Are you, do you have a question, Abram? You were just praising the Lord. Hey, man, let's praise the Lord. Abram, love it, man. I am super grateful uh, to be back and to to be able to bring God's word to you. And we're starting a new series today. Awesome. First Peter. I'm excited about that. Before we dive in, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us one more time briefly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we will hear in weeks to come about the imperishable word That it is by your imperishable word that you bring new life. That the word of the Lord will remain forever. All other things will pass away, but your word stands forever. We pray that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word today. That you would save those who currently don't know you. That you would sanctify those who do. That you would grant us encouragement. As we continue on this pilgrimage towards your heavenly city, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Do we have any Lion King fans here today? Raise your hands if we have have Lion King fans. Raise them high, be proud. I'm also judging all of you who don't have your hands up right now for not being Lion King fans. Now, let me be clear I'm not talking about Lion King 2. Or Lion King three, you can put your hand down now. I'm so glad that you like it, Lion King three, or any of the series spin-offs. I'm talking about the original, the Disney classic. Uh, Leah bought tickets for our, uh, for Christmas for our family to go see the play this summer at the Kennedy Center, and I think it's safe to say safe to say we can't wait. What a lineup of characters, right? You can get a pretty good sense, I think, of someone's personality by finding out who their favorite character in Lion King is. The traditional types among us, well, their favorite types, their favorite characters are Mufasa, Nala, or Zarabi. Uh, The comedians among us, I'm trusting most of the kids, love Pumbaa, Timon, or Zazu, maybe even Ed, though Ed's a bad character, right? Uh, the empathetic among us who long to grow in strength and valor, they, well, they love Simba. The evil among us love Scar, but let's be real, if you love Scar, there are big problems in your life and we have, need to have a conversation after the service. And then uh, there are lo- those who love Rafiki. Let's call them the people with wit and Wisdom. Rafiki is my favorite character, and and I'm not patting myself on the back here by claiming to have wit or wisdom, because let's be real, I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you that my favorite character of Lion King is a baboon shaman. That is not wise. But I love Rafiki. I love his hilarious voice, his delivery, and his wisdom. It's Rafiki who plays a key role in what is the turning point in the movie when he reminds Simba of his true identity. right? Simba has been living for years under the false impression that he was the cause of his father's death. He's been avoiding the pain, the, dealing with the pain he feels so much that he doesn't even know who he is anymore. And Rafiki tells him, I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. It's this exchange that reminds Simba of his true identity and is the point at which Simba begins to deal with all that happened in the past and which prepares him to embrace his role as king in the future. I wonder how many of us are like Simba today. How many of us have forgotten our true identity as Christians. And because we've forgotten it, have experienced confusion, pain, or heartache. Or maybe we haven't forgotten our true identity, but just need to be reminded again of who we are as Christians and what that means for our lives. Or maybe you've recently become a Christian or you've been a Christian for a while, but God is awakening fresh desires to walk with him more closely And you would benefit from knowing what your identity is as a Christian and what that means for your life. I ask those questions because that's the situation of the Christians Peter writes to in the letter of 1 Peter, a letter that we're beginning a new study in today. So I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Peter. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on page 1,014. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to encourage you to take the Bible that we've provided as a gift from us to you. There's nothing that we would want more than for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. We're going to begin our series in First Peter looking at just the first two verses, where we'll see that the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians spread out across multiple regions in what is modern-day Turkey. And his big concern in these first two verses is to remind them of their identity and what that means for their lives. So let me go ahead and read verses one and two for us now. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here's what you need to remember about your identity today if you follow Jesus. Remember that you are elect. Remember that you are elect. And remember that you are exiles. That is who you are as a Christian. You are elect, chosen by God for salvation. And you are Exiles, strangers, foreigners, and aliens in this world. And both aspects of your identity really have massive ramifications for your life. And those are going to be my two points. Point one, remember you are elect. And point two, remember you are exiles. My first point will be longer. Then, my second point, just to give you a heads up. So, first, brothers and sisters, remember you are elect. Look at the second half of verse one again. This is the Apostle Peter writing. We're not going to belabor that point. This is Peter from the Gospels, Peter from the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter is writing to those who are elect. My friends, if you follow Jesus, the first thing Peter wants you to know about your identity is you are elect, chosen. Now, I recognize that is a theologically loaded term around which there is so much debate, but we have to recognize that when Peter used this term, he wasn't intending for them to debate with one another about the nature of election, or about the order of salvation in the eternal mind of God. Neither was he interested in them arguing with one another about what God's election means for those who aren't elect. Instead, Peter wanted them to hear the astounding truth that they, Gentiles according to the flesh, were now full fledged members of God's chosen people, inheritors of a holy calling and purpose in life and recipients of a future glorious inheritance that would far surpass their wildest and greatest dreams. The fact that Peter would call these Gentiles elect is astounding because throughout the Old Testament, it was the ethnic nation of Israel that was called God's elect or God's chosen people. Gentiles were viewed as cut off from God's covenant people and without hope in the world. But now we read that they too are elect, chosen to receive God's covenant love and salvation. In fact, almost everything in these first two verses is meant to identify these Gentiles as citizens of a new Israel, citizens of the new covenant people of God. Consider first the word elect, as we've already mentioned. Elsewhere, translated as chosen. Throughout the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel that God repeatedly calls his elect or his chosen people. But it's not just, not, not just the word elect that shows us these Gentiles are the new Israel. It's the word exiles. Elsewhere in the letter, Peter calls them sojourners. Sojourners and exiles were key descriptions of the nation of Israel, at different points in their history. Think about the study we just had through the book of Genesis, right? Abraham and Jacob, for the course of their lives, were sojourners in Canaan. The Israelites were sojourners in Egypt, and later in their history, they were exiles among the nations of Babylon and Assyria. That's why Peter, if you look again at the second half of verse one, uses the word dispersion to describe his audience in verse one. The dispersion Or in Greek, the diaspora, referred to faithful Israelites exiled in Babylon and Assyria who were waiting for God to fulfill his covenant promises to return and rescue them from exile. And now these Gentiles who believe in Jesus are the new diaspora, waiting for Jesus to return to finally gather his people from exile and bring them to their new home. But there's more. Keep looking at verse 2 with me at these statements about God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son working to affect salvation. In, Old Te- in, in the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel to be a people set apart from the nations around them. And now we see these Gentiles had been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit. More than that, they were set apart for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. This is really the, the climax of where Peter is identifying them as citizens of this new Israel, this new covenant people of God. This description of being set apart for obedience and sprinkling with blood comes directly from Exodus 24, where God established the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, with the nation of Israel. If we were to go back to Exodus 24, what we would see is that the words of the book of the law, the 10 commandments were read to the people of Israel and they responded to God by saying, after having his words read to them, we will be your people. We will obey all that is written, obedience. And then after they say, we will obey all that is written, what does Moses do? He takes the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkles them with it. What Peter is saying is that the Old Covenant has given way to the New Covenant, and the Old Covenant nation of Israel has given way to the New Covenant people of God, a people identified not by Jewish ethnicity, but a people identified by faith in Jesus Christ, who through faith in Christ have been set apart by the Spirit and sprinkled and cleansed by the blood of Christ. What Peter is saying to them, and what he is saying to you and me today, if we've put our faith in Jesus is, remember your identity. Remember who you are. Remember that God has chosen you to receive his covenant promises, to be the recipients of his steadfast love, to be holy as he is holy to be cleansed once and for all by the blood of the perfect sacrifice and to receive a glorious inheritance that awaits us when Jesus returns. But he doesn't just call us elect and leave it at that. He wants us to see that our election, our salvation, is a work of the triune God beginning in eternity past, and worked out in space and time by each person of the Godhead. Look at verse 2 again with me. Everything that you see there is modifying our identity as elect exiles. We are elect according to or because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some Christians read that verse and interpret it as meaning that God looked down the corridors of history into the future because he can see all things. And when he looked down the corridors of history, he saw the people who would respond to the gospel and believe in it and then chose them for salvation because he foresaw that they would believe. That's why he chose them. But I don't think that's what it's teaching. I think that the uniform testimony of the New Testament is that we are saved entirely by grace, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and our salvation is entirely a work of God. But if God looked down the corridors of history and chose the ones that he saw would already respond in faith, then salvation is by works. It's because of what he saw in us. But I don't think that's the only reason Peter doesn't mean that, because later he says the same thing about Jesus. Look down at chapter 1, verse 20 real quick with me. Peter says about Jesus that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Right? Pe- Peter doesn't mean to say that God the Father looked down the corridor of history and saw that the eternal Son of God would take on flesh and save God's people and that's why Jesus was foreknown. It means the Father ordained, specifically chose the eternal Son to take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he ordained when Jesus would appear specifically. That's why Peter later says, or earlier in the New Testament says in the uh, book of Acts, that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In the same way, when Peter says we are elect according to God's foreknowledge, I think he intends for us to hear that God specifically completely apart from anything in us, in fact, contrary to what he would find in us, chose us for salvation, chose us to receive his mercy and his grace. Now, here's the thing. I get that you might have questions about that. I get that you might have questions about the implications of that. But if our first response to hearing that is to come up with questions or raise objections, I think we're missing the point, right? I want you to imagine with me that I take my kids on an amazing vacation to a, uh, to a house that just has the most ridiculous pool. It's got a waterfall. It's got a diving board. It's got a massive slide. And they see it, and when they see it, they proceed to stand outside of the pool and argue with one another about where the water came from or argue about what the correct chlorine content of the water should be, or, or argue about what the correct temperature of the water is, all without ever getting into the pool and enjoying it, they have missed the point. I brought you to the pool so that you would get in and enjoy it. Friends, in the same way, our identity as God's elect isn't a truth to be argued over. Yes, you can have really thoughtful, good, hard conversations, and even reach different conclusions about the specific implications of that reality. But it isn't ultimately a truth to be first argued over, but rejoiced in and enjoyed. If you've trusted in Jesus, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father, in eternity past, knowing full well all the sins that you would commit, knowing full well the darkness of your heart, knowing full well that you would be dead in sins, in bondage to sin, an enemy of his, living in active rebellion against him, looked upon you and said, I love you, you are mine. That is to be rejoiced in, friends. To know or be known in Scripture, often entails intimacy and love. Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and had a child. Don't miss this. God's foreknowledge isn't an abstract term meant to be dissected, but a love and devotion to be received with thanks. In eternity past... God the Father chose you to receive the fullness of his divine devotion and love. And through his love and devotion has given you a new identity, chosen child of God. Friends, lift up your heads. Behold your new identity. Behold, the Father in heaven loves you and has chosen you to be his forever. And you can't lose this love. He's not going to take his love away from you. Parents, especially among us, should understand this. I assume you loved your child from the moment that you learned you had conceived, and that nothing would cause you to stop loving them in all creation. How much more must God love us, whom he has loved not for five years, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 50 years, but from eternity past? He will always love us as his chosen children. But our identity isn't just loved by God, it's also sanctified by the Spirit of God. Look again at verse 2. We were elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. By the Spirit of God, we have been made holy and given a holy calling. The word sanctified has two different meanings in scripture. It can refer to a once for all sanctification that happens when we are when we put our faith in Jesus, we are definitively made holy in God's sight and set apart in Jesus Christ. And it can also refer to the process of becoming more like Jesus over the course of our life as we continue to to struggle and fight against sin and we continue to commit ourselves to God's means of grace. God uses those in our lives to make us more like his son Jesus. That's also sanctification. And I think both meanings are present, but that the dominant note here refers to the definitive identity we now have. We were chosen by God to be set apart, to be made holy by the Spirit and to live holy lives in the Spirit. Friends, your identity isn't just loved by God. It's made holy by God. You have been chosen for a holy calling and purpose. God has made you holy in Christ and now calls you to holiness through spirit-empowered obedience to Christ. I wonder if you remember that That's, that's part of your identity as a Christian. How are you doing living out the holy identity God has given you by his spirit. How are you doing? Putting off the old self. Putting off anger, impatience, lust, lying, and all the other passions of the flesh described in Scripture. We don't just put those things off, friends, because God says so but because we also realize that obedience to God and living out his holy calling is where true life will be found. Where, Where is Satan tempting you to try and find true life outside of where God says true life will be found? Think of the images scripture uses to describe returning to old ways of living after having been set apart for holiness by God. Proverbs says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Ugh, right? Or like Mike McKinley once described it. Turning back to old ways of living rather than walking in God's holy and life-giving ways as his set-apart people is like stopping at 7-Eleven to eat a hot dog when you're on your way to an amazing Thanksgiving Day feast. Like Who would do that? Not only is the hot dog nowhere near as good as the food that you're going to eat at the feast, it's also going to ruin your appetite for the really good food that awaits. Kids, I especially want you all to think about this. Would you rather have a rubbery hot dog that's been sitting under a warming light for eight hours or Fresh turkey, mashed potatoes with gravy and stuffing and buttery dinner rolls and hot apple pie. Which would you choose? Of course, it's the Thanksgiving Day feast. Kids, sin promises to be tasty, but it's like that rubbery hot dog that's been sitting under that warming light all day. It's a cheap and terrible imitation of the real thing that never satisfies I mean, to all of us who are here, who trust in Jesus, how have you all been, do- how have you all been tempted to turn back to old ways, to eat a 7-Eleven hot dog instead of feasting at the Lord's table? How are you doing with drunkenness? Are you drinking more than you should, more often than you should? Are you giving in to anger in your home, yelling at your, your spouse and your kids? or harboring bitterness coldly in your heart? Are you engaging in sexual immorality, using pornography, or being unfaithful to your spouse? Are you being honest with those around you, or are you weaving a web of lies about things going on in your life? Friends, these things will never deliver on the promises they make. We can't be reminded enough of this because sin is seductive and deceitful. And that's why we need to be reminded of our identity as those who are set apart, made holy in Jesus Christ and now empowered by the Spirit to live holy lives in Christ. That is part of our identity as Christians. Remember who you are. Remember you are God's chosen, loved by God and set apart by God. Right? Peter is going to tell us over and over again throughout this letter because of who we are to put off sin and live holy lives. Inevitably, though, when we talk about sin, the reality is we'll all be able to look at our lives and see ways that we haven't lived up to it, up to the standard God has called us to, which is why Peter makes sure to also remind us, as God's elect, that we are forgiven and cleansed, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus It was the sprinkling with the blood of bulls and goats that enabled the Israelites to remain in right relationship with God, the blood acting as payment for their sins. But we all know the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to fully cleanse the people. Instead, a greater sacrifice and a more powerful blood was needed. The blood of the spotless Lamb of God, the blood of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ was needed, and his blood was shed once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. And those who put their faith in Jesus have been sprinkled by that all-powerful blood and thus are fully cleansed fully forgiven, once and for all sprinkled, that we might know that we will always be God's chosen, loved by God, set apart by God, and cleansed by God. Friends, if you have put your trust in Jesus and you are carrying around shame and guilt for sins you've already confessed, remember, you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those sins that were like crimson have been turned to white as snow. If Satan is accusing you for sins you committed in the past, heaping condemnation on you, tell him, I've been cleansed by the blood. If you're keeping sins in the dark, by all means, bring them out into the light of God's presence and be reminded of his promise that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins because you've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, remember who you are. Remember you are loved by God set apart by God, cleansed by God. Remember, you are elect. And second, remember, you are exiles. I want you to notice again how Peter identifies them in verse 1. To those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word exiles might make us think of the Jews being exiled from their land for their sins in the Old Testament, but that's not what's entirely be- that's not what's behind Peter's use of the term here. His audience isn't being punished for their sin. They've been forgiven of their sins as he's ju- as he's about to remind them. The word translated exiles here is elsewhere translated as sojourners, strangers, resident aliens, and pilgrims, Christians are all of those things in this world. Not because we've been displaced from our homeland, but because God has given us a new citizenship, a new citizenship in his heavenly kingdom. What I think we all recognize, though, is that we aren't in his heavenly kingdom yet, which means we aren't home yet. We're on a pilgrimage towards that home. We're sojourners in this world waiting for God to gather his scattered people, waiting for God to establish the new heavens and the new earth, the place where sin and sorrow and heartache and struggling and pain and evil will be no more. Because we're not there yet, that means our experience in this life will be colored by unfulfilled longings, by struggle, by heartache, by emptiness, by sadness, sorrow, and death. Things will just n- never just be right. They'll, they'll never be quite right. Never, never be the way that we feel they ought to be. And some of us will experience chronic pain and illness. Bodies that don't work the way they were supposed to. bodies that once were youthful and vibrant will experience the slow grind of the years and aches will begin to set in for good. Skin will begin to wrinkle. We want so bad for health and beauty to last, but in this world that isn't our home, it won't. Or friendships that once brought joy may turn sour because of sin. The new home you bought will eventually need remodeling. And then that remodeling will need remodeling The new car will eventually break down and need to be replaced. Hopes will be dashed. Evil will seem like it's continuing to prevail. You look around and want to shout, why don't things work the way that they're supposed to? And the answer is, you're not home. You're exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, awaiting entrance into your true home. We're pilgrims passing through on our way to the land where those things will be no more. This is especially important for the teens to consider and think about. Uh, One of the hallmarks of youth is youthful optimism, right? And there are lots of things to be optimistic about. I don't want to sound like you shouldn't be optimistic about anything. Lord willing, you will experience lots of things in your life that bring you joy and give you hope. But if your ultimate hope isn't in the world to come, you are sadly going to be let down by this world. All the joy that you experience in this world will also be stained with sorrow. Every blessing, as you get older, you will realize also comes with a distinct set of curses. All the things you might seek to store up, you'll eventually have to leave behind and let go of. I think it was John Piper who once remarked that he's never seen a U-Haul attached to the back of a hearse. You can't take it with you when you go. This world and storing up treasures in this world, what a vain pursuit that is. Build your treasures, seek treasures in the world to come, where Peter is going to tell us that an inheritance awaits us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Every, every type of glory in this world, status, power, material wealth, your job, reputation, whatever, whatever it is, your new clothes, all of it fading and soon to be passing away. Seek the treasure that lies in the world to come. Friend, that, that's where we're going, right? That's where we're headed. But it's not only the heartache and sorrow that come from things just not working the way they're supposed to. Being sojourners and strangers also comes with the hardship of enduring persecution and opposition for our faith. That's one of the central experiences of the Christians to whom Peter is writing, and I think what what propels him uh, to write this letter. They're experiencing all this persecution. They're like, what gives? We put our faith in Jesus, now things are harder. And Peter's like, hey, just want you to know, that's part of the deal. This is part of the Christian life. These Christians once felt at home among the people with whom they lived, going along, doing the same things they did. They put their hope in the things of this world. They worshiped the gods of this world. They engaged in sinful behaviors that were accepted as normal. But then when God saved them, he set them on a new path that most of the people around them weren't on. And people regarded their newfound faith and way of living as off-putting and strange, and that made them targets for persecution. Persecution. They endured insults and mocking, as we'll see in Peter's letter. They endured hostility and hardship, as we'll see. If you think about the book of Hebrews, we see that early Christians were thrown in jail. Some had their property taken from them. Some were physically assaulted and beaten, and some were even killed. As we know from church tradition, that Peter himself was eventually killed for his faith. This is why Peter tells them about the work of the triune God in saving them, so that they would know that what they were experiencing wasn't an accident, right? It was part of God's plan and purposes in their lives and in ours to sanctify us through suffering and to make us more like Jesus through experiencing the rejection and suffering he experienced to save us. Think about how Jesus is the true exile, the one who left homeland, his homeland in heaven to become a stranger on earth. No one was stranger than Jesus. The dude was perfectly righteous on an earth covered with people who were dead in sins. No one was more foreign than him to the people around him. The only perfectly righteous one, the only light in a world shrouded in darkness. He was opposed and rejected by the people among whom he lived, but this was all part of God's plan, to save the people God foreknew before the foundation of the world. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place, He died the death that we deserved and then rose from the dead in power, offering forgiveness of sins and a new citizenship and identity to all who would put their trust in him. But if we put our trust in him, it means also that to one degree or another, we will face the rejection that he faced. We have been chosen to endure hardship. Christians living in other parts of the world, right, in China in Central Asia and in certain countries in the Middle East, experience this persecution in acute ways on a regular basis. I mean, throughout the history of uh, the church, the experience of Christians around the world has been more or less one of persecution rather than acceptance. And that's a reality that we need to prepare ourselves for, living as we do, In America, if this country continues on its current trajectory of, uh, if this country, uh, country continues on its current cultural trajectory, the experience of open persecution and hostility for following Jesus will only become more and more common. I'm going to hit pause real quick on my manuscript and let you know. I recognize that places like YouTube and TikTok and things like that, they make tons of money off of scaring you, pumping fear into your life about this or that thing that is going to happen. I am not bringing this up to scare you or to do anything like that or to be fear-mongering. I'm just telling you what Jesus told you. If they hated me, they're gonna hate you. And I'm bringing this up now as we go through this study on First Peter. We're gonna hear it over and over again. It is good for us to be prepared for it so that should it come, we might not be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon us. That instead we might be prepared for it and even rejoice in the midst of it, knowing that God is gonna use it to refine our faith and make us more like Jesus Christ. I'm unpausing here. This is why we need to remember who we are. We are exiles in this world. This is in part what God has called us to. It's through many trials and tribulations that we will enter the kingdom Now, I'm guessing if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're thinking to yourself, man, this is a terrible, terrible way to get people to join your religion. Tell tell them they're going to be persecuted. You should have stuck with the first point. Tell them they're chosen and that God loves them and all that stuff. Like, don't tell them that they're going to be persecuted, right? Listen, if that's what you're thinking, I get it. But the reality is following Jesus includes hardship. It includes opposition. It includes suffering. It includes feeling like a stranger in the world, just out of place. And yet, it's completely worth it. Because it also includes a living hope. It also includes forgiveness of sins. It also includes reconciliation with God and the promise of eternal life in his presence. Not only that, but the reality is, the Bible teaches that being in exile is something all of us will experience, whether we believe Jesus or not. The question is not if we'll be exiles, but when. And the Bible teaches that at the coming judgment, all who have rejected God, who have not put their faith in Jesus, who have lived for this world or lived for themselves to to whatever degree that is the case in your life or others' lives, who have lived for the pleasures of this world, will be cast out of God's presence eternally. They will suffer eternal exile under God's judgment. But those who forsake the world and its pleasures, becoming spiritual exiles now, will enter into God's eternal kingdom where we will be welcomed into God's home and presence forever. Be a, be a citizen of this world now, be in spiritual exile forever. That's what the Bible is, is saying. These are the choices. Or become an exile now through faith in Jesus Christ. Receive a glorious homeland forever. Friend, I trust you know which choice is the right one to make. The question isn't if we'll be exiles, but when. And really, ha- have the pleasures of this world fulfilled on their promises? Have you finally found everything that your heart desires and had your deepest longings met? Obviously, the answer is no, because it's in God and with God that those longings will finally be met. What does Psalm Psalm 90 tell us? Oh God, you are our dwelling place. God himself is our home and is who we were made for, both now and in eternity I trust you know that you can't find those pleasures ultimately fulfilled in this world. There is only one person who can fulfill them. But to enter into his kingdom, you need to renounce your spiritual citizenship in this world, right? Turn in your passport that's stamped with love of self, love of the world, love of wealth, status, and power. If you bring that, you bring that passport to the border crossing at God's heavenly kingdom, you're gonna be turned back at the gates. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive a new, sta- a, a, a new passport, a new citizenship, a new identity stamped with the love of God, the love of his word, the love of his people, love and longing for his kingdom. Only that passport will ensure safe entrance into God's kingdom. And to those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, remember that you will always be chosen but you won't always be exiles. Our exiled status won't last forever. The God who chose us will keep us. The Spirit who set set us apart will sanctify us through the sufferings we experience, and the sprinkled blood of Christ will ensure that when we rise in the judgment, we will be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom to delight in his presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us of these twin realities, that you have set your love upon us. Your steadfast love and devotion are ours for all time. You've set us apart in the Spirit. Now empower us by the Spirit to live holy lives in obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Help us also to remember, Lord, that we are not home. Keep us from building homes and lives in this world in a spiritual and ultimate sense calls us to seek a treasure, an inheritance that is with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.